I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Yeah, so Michael, we're doing two in a day today. Oh man, I don't know. And uh, I'm going to tell you, my first one is great, and my second one isn't complete yet. So <laughs> glad stay it's tuned not just me. I'm like. For the next episode where we're a little more, I don't know, <laughs> impromptu? I don't know. I think I don't know what the we've word got is. a couple of hours. We'll hopefully be fine. Yeah, I think you're first, right? I think I am first this week. Um, okay. Which you ready? I'm ready. I'm so prepared. I had the greatest moment this week in that I was I started researching, and two days into my research, the New York Times published an obituary on this person <gasps> in their Overlooked series, which is this thing they've been doing where they've been writing obituaries for people who didn't get obituaries when they died because the New York Times oh. was a patriarchal, um, very like conservative publication for a really long time, and now they're like, that maybe wasn't so great, so we're going to write about largely overlooked women who like should have gotten an obituary and definitely didn't oh nice Uh, well spoilers she died so we got that guy (laughs) out of the way um but i don't know when i don't know where so i'm excited yeah let's let's dive into it um so her um the name that she is sort of widely known by um is Pandita Ramabai Sarasvati. She's uh Whoa, did you practice saying that in the mirror? I did and I definitely asked um a friend I have from India to like give me a little bit of pronunciation help on this. I'm still going to mangle nice. a lot of stuff this week, so apologies in advance. Um but she... That sounded really good though. Thank you. That that I did actually practice a couple of times. <laughs> good job. Um so she is uh a Indian activist um campaigner for women's rights and education she's born in western india on april 23rd 1858 um so still very much british ruled colonial india um she's the daughter of a brahmin family so in the hindu caste system which um is the defining social order of india at that time um and still largely sort of defines social hierarchies today too the Brahmins are the top caste, um, so they're traditionally right. like scholars and priests, um, the intellectual elite in a lot of ways. Um, and so she's born into this very elite family um, socially, where her father is sort of like a traveling religious scholar. Um, so he mm-hmm. makes a living reciting Hindu religious texts, um, studies Sanskrit, which is the liturgical language of Hinduism. And so growing up, he, in what is like a sort of radically progressive move, is like, I'm not going to marry you off in your early teenage years to someone. Instead, Ugh. right? It's like an encouraging a change. a person. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, bare, bare minimum, but pretty nice. Right. I mean, given it. the standards of our podcast, this is we're doing pretty well so far. <laughs> um, yeah. And in this. What time period did you say? Mid 1800s. Oh, yes, that's good. That's good. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, So he keeps her at home and teaches her Sanskrit so that way she can learn um, 
how to sort of work with these religious texts and gives her this really, for the time, like deep education that she probably would not have gotten in any other context. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then keeping, though, with the theme of this podcast, um, when she's 16, her mom, her dad, and all of her sisters die in a massive famine. Dang. So just like getting the like depressing stuff out of the way early. Um, And so her and her brother... Um, who survives, start traveling, um, reciting sacred texts so they can support themselves using the education their dad gave them. And in 1878, they moved to Calcutta, um, where... um, Raising my hand for a question. mm -hmm. Um, Reciting sacred texts Mm -hmm. as, like, a job? Yeah, so um, from what I understand, um, a lot of... um, most um, Indians at this point are illiterate. And so if you want to engage with um, sort of Hindu religious texts, if you want to like hear it, if you want someone to like say something at a ceremony or as part of a religious celebration, most people aren't able to do that in the way that like Mm. someone would get up and like be a lector in a Catholic church today. There's just not enough literacy Mm -hmm. for it. Um, And so you have this class of people whose professional job it is, is they're basically like, I think sort of the equivalent to like traveling priests would have been in medieval Europe, wherein like they're highly literate and they're like deeply familiar with the religious texts and so like can kind of offer those kind of services to people in return for mm. money or gifts or things like that. Um, oh, cool. Okay. All right. So she's doing that for a trade with her brother. With her brother. Um, and they moved to Calcutta, which is sort of the major city on that part of the Indian subcontinent. And really quickly get a reputation for having an excellent mastery of these texts. So much so that she gets invited to the university. um, And after sort of hearing her talk and listen to her sort of expound upon scripture, they give her the title Pandita, which means scholar. Um, And it's not just like a sort of honorary title. It comes with like very real social and caste privileges. um, And is an indication that she is sort of an accepted part of the scholarly community. Um, which from what I understand is a pretty big deal for a woman at that period, especially a single unmarried woman. Um, Mm, Yeah. And so it's at this time then that she really begins doing the work that's going to get her sort of noticed by people who do podcasts like us. Um, (laughs) She starts um, becoming a bit of a social reformer and campaigner, and that's the work that's going to sort of drive her for the rest of her life. Um, so she joins the Brahmo Samaj, I think. It's a um, mm-hmm. reformist Hindu organization that is working for sort of a more monotheistic interpretation of Hinduism. Um, and this is the point this week where I'm officially out of my depth. But from what I understand, um, Hinduism has a really complicated relationship with like poly- polytheism versus monotheism. In the sense that, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't fall really cleanly into that kind of Western division between, like, there is one god or there are many gods. Um, right. But rather there's, like, a whole set of, like, sacred figures who are related to each other in a bunch of different ways and are worshipped differently. But are, I think, kind of all representations of the same, like, godlike concept. Um, uh-huh. But this group is interested in sort of building on the um, Jewish and Islamic traditions that are floating around in India as well and sort of articulating Mm -hmm. a more monotheistic view of Hinduism. Um, And it's also Mm -hmm. tied into um, 
a bit of like cast reform stuff so looking at like the impact the caste system has on social relations and trying to find you know a slightly less oppressive way of dealing with caste um oh okay and this is sort of indicative of um her sort of dissatisfaction i would say with like hindu religious practices um and we'll mm-hmm. sort of see later in life that she actually ends up converting to christianity and so this interest in monotheism is something that will sort of stick with her as well as her interest in the more socially oriented parts of the movement um nice but the like real catalyzing moment as it is for every woman in their life is their marriage because that is the only value it's, women it's have a big deal. it's just just it's marrying um so in 18 18- when it's the only option it gets a lot of focus it, you know yeah and so for her her marriage is especially for the time incredibly controversial uh Uh-oh. and it is for two reasons was he a drummer <laughs> you know what i mean did he have a van I think it's sort of the like 1880s Hindu Brahmin equivalent of that. Ooh, better yet, did his mom still cut his hair? Ooh. Oh, I'm Ooh. really worried that some of these are from personal experiences. No, let's not talk about it. Move on. Um, so in 1880, um, she marries a lawyer from the Bengal region of India um, who belongs to a lower caste than she does. So not only is she having an intercaste marriage, but she's also marrying someone from a different region. Um, and from the the little bit of a down low I got from my friend from India, this is still like a pretty big deal um, in terms of like marriage customs today. Like you generally marry people within your caste from your region. And so the fact that she's doing neither of those things kind of like throws a lot of stuff up in the air to the point where like she- We don't know how to cope. We, yeah. We don't. Um, so she actually has to have, like, a civil wedding ceremony, um, because the, like, religious authorities are like, no, 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 we're not gonna do this. Shocking that that's an option, though. That, I mean, you... That feels pretty weird. Yeah, I mean, the British had, you know, lots, lots of things are problematic about their relationship with India and colonialism, but this seemed to be... No, I think it went great. (laughs) I I think, I think you poll anybody in India right now, they were like, oh, we loved it. That's why we shirked them off. Very dramatically. Yeah. Anyway, Katie's I'm kidding. Hot take. I'm kidding, everyone. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. White people. Yay. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so, married, um, has a daughter, uh, Manorama, but her husband dies just two years into their marriage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, she decides to move to a slightly more rural part of India, uh, to the Pune district, and founds the... Arya Women's Association, which is an organization that works to promote education and empowerment among women in rural India. Nice. Um, and this is basically the work that's going to sort of take her through the rest of her life. Um, so as part of it, in 1883, she goes to England to study medicine and to try to become a doctor. Um, so at like, you know, she, w- how old would she be at this point? Um, she's like, in her early 20s, she's a single mom, and she packs up and moves to England. Um, she enrolls in medical school, but isn't able to finish her program because she suffers from hearing loss, and because accessibility isn't a thing in the 1880s, they're just like, well, you can't hear well, so you can't be a doctor. Hearing loss? What age? Early 20s. And it, this is something that really? like isn't really explained. It just like 
is in all of the sources is just like suffering from hearing loss couldn't be a doctor her child her child would have been like two or three at the point of making this trip interesting i wonder why she lost her hearing i've heard of uh i i know of a woman through distant uh familiarity not like a friend or anything um but she lost her hearing when she went through menopause Mm. and just lost all of it and i'm not sure why but i was associating that with like when you're pregnant like lots of things can happen Mm -hmm. or like childbirth and especially like blood flow and like nerves are all shifting around like i i don't know if she's only two or three though i don't know maybe it was just something else predisposition or something yeah i'm not really sound like a doctor i don't know i'm just (laughs) curious i don't know Okay. Um, so, so she can't hear, and she's in a foreign country where she probably speaks the language fine. Well, I don't know. Do do you think they taught English in India? Yeah. So she she speaks English um, really well to the point where she's actually um, we'll see in a second. Jumping a little bit ahead here, but actually um, publishes uh, sort of a version of an autobiography in English in a few years. Um, but she also speaks Greek and Hebrew. Um, oh, Marathi, cool. so she's chill. Uh, which is the her native language in India, as well as Sanskrit. Um, so she, one of the things she does while she's chilling in England um, is she translates the Bible from the original <laughs> Greek and Hebrew into Marathi, uh, which is the first time it's translated into that particular language. Um, she's teaching at a women's college um, and is teaching Sanskrit um, as well as Indian languages to. Um, British missionaries who will be headed to India to work there. Um, Useful. And then in, I want to say 1884, 85, um, she converts to Christianity. Um, Mm. And this decision is sort of a big controversy among her supporters. Um, There's a lot of people in India who get really mad because it kind of, they feel like she's capitulating to Western ideals. Um, But a lot of British... Christians are upset with her because she doesn't stop wearing traditional Indian dress and she's still a practicing vegetarian. There's not a dress code in Christianity. Mm, there, There is not. Is there? there really is not. No. I mean, there's some, like, Judean, like, what is it? Deuteronomy stuff, right? But, like, the, but that's Jewish people. Most of us that's are, like... in our book. Most Christians are, like, you know... Jesus didn't care. Wear what you want. Um, but at this point, obviously, that's not quite how they understood it. And religion was sort of much more deeply tied to cultural identifiers. Um, So for me, it's sort of an indication that, like, these are actually, like, really firmly held beliefs in her case because she's not Mm -hmm. just doing it sort of for cultural acceptance or to, like, get in with a particular social group um, and sort of maintains a lot of her Indian cultural practices while at the same time taking on a lot of the, like, theological elements of Christianity. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that gives her a lot of really good insights into both, like, British and Indian culture because she's a little bit of an outsider to both at this point. And so has, like, some really insightful, um, especially about, like, obviously the place of women in society, um, but just sort of other cultural practices that she ends up writing about in ways that are, like, uh, at least for the, like, 1880s, very witty and very interesting. Um, Cool. And then, so in 1886, um, Christian, been hanging out in the UK for a little bit, um, travels to the United States to attend the graduation from medical school of one of her relatives, um, who is the first Indian woman to earn an MD. So, like, family is also off Me. doing other really cool, interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. And while in the U.S., uh, she becomes sort of deeply impressed by the optimism a lot of a lot of the women she meets there, um, 
I don't think we often think of like late 19th century feminists in the U.S. as like optimists, but I mm-hmm. guess in the sort of grand scheme of things, like they were doing pretty well compared to like feminists in India, I would imagine. Um, and she actually meets Harriet Tubman, which I find just yeah! like one of the coolest things um, and writes back home to her daughter um, that she wants to be, quote, as helpful to her own dear countrywomen as Harriet was and is to her own people, um, which is the just tubs. so cool. Because I, I think for me, it's such a hard thing to like hold in my head that like all of this American history is happening at the same time that all of these other things yeah. are happening. And so when you get those kind of intersections where people are, you know, interacting with like Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass and you're like, oh, that's right. Yeah. These things are like contemporaneous with each other. Um, right. It's just for me is always like a really pleasant reminder that like, oh, right. History is happening all over the world. And these things that right. like, are happening at the same time do actually occasionally interact with each other in really interesting ways. Yeah. 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 Uh, I love that she met her. I love that. Yeah. How old, how, when, when do you think that was? So this would have been um, in the mid 1880s. Um, so about yeah. 20 years after the civil war ends. Um, yeah. So Harriet is probably getting pretty old, but um, yeah, obviously still around and kicking enough to like have a meeting with an Indian feminist. Like you do. They probably have some things in common. I would imagine so. Uh, and while she's in the U.S., this is when she publishes her her book, which is sort of a mix of like a memoir um, and like a social policy, I guess you would say sort of advocacy book. Um, it's called The High Caste Hindu Woman. And it's her writing about her experiences in the caste system and particularly that of being a widow in Brahmin society. Um, mm-hmm here's where we get to the like unsurprising part of today's episode um so being a widow is like not great um and especially they don't know what to do with you in like high in the higher ends of um hindu society at the time is like really marginalizing um and so the customs of widowhood kind of condemn widows to these like very sort of ancillary marginal positions um they're forced to shave their heads, wear coarse, shabby clothing, um, and are often denied food um, and other what? sort of necessities. What? Mm-hmm. Why the... What? Um, and in addition to that, they're... Um, we got to be able to pick you out in a crowd I'm, so we know if you should be there or not. And I think... So no fun. And so I think part of that, yeah, so it comes from this thing that they're prohibited from remarrying. And so there's a big emphasis on, like, identifying that so you can make sure that that's not happening. Um, but it's also just, like, they you sort of no longer have a, a place, I guess, because they're not attached to a man. And so they're really susceptible to physical and sexual abuse because they don't have, like, a, a quote-unquote, like, protective um, influence in any of the societal structures. Um, great. That's great. I love that. I love that as like a, oh my God. Okay. Um, but oh wait, it, it gets better. It gets. So wait, what if, what, but what if she said sarcastically, but what if your son is grown enough to protect you? Do that, does that count? I didn't see anything about that. Marrying. Yeah, no, let's forget. Great. Cool. Um, And the like, the cherry on top of this is marriage customs, particularly in more elite circles meant young girls like not young women, young girls are getting married off to older men. The older men then die 
long before these young girls do. Yeah, she's like 22 and a widow. Yeah. For then, foreseeably, like, if you live a long time, like 60 years. Mm -hmm. That's a... Bald in a burlap sack without food. It's a long time. So probably not 60 years, probably like two. Yeah. Great. To like awesome. live on the marginalized. That's a good use society. of a human life. No, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah and, I, and I think this, this sort of ties into the conversation that we were having earlier is that this this sort of recurring theme we've seen in our last couple of episodes about like marriage laws being a really crucial thing for like Dude. empowering women to not be marginalized off to the side of society in burlap sacks with shaved heads um because it sort of unless that's how you want to dress and look then follow your right bliss. but, but when it's forced, forced upon, upon you, you um and it's the kind of thing where like um olymp de gouge in our last episode sort of fighting for divorce mm-hmm. as a way for french women not to be trapped in marriages yeah. um there was sort of all of these examples that we've been looking at where like women are really interested in like marriage laws as a point of access to activism because they're the things that like very directly impact them on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. um, and often result in these rather Ooh. absurd situations where like you're a widow forever and forever is 40 50 60 years no agency over your own life none whatsoever um, good times yeah and so um ramabai is like i'm not really about that and i'm gonna do what i can to like make that better um and so mm-hmm. she writes these um this book um writes other things gets them published pretty widely in the u.s um and gets a group of american women to form the american ramabai association which has dozens of chapters around the country sort of dedicated to raising money to help her support her work in india um which is part of this sort of shift in american culture which i sort of found really interesting um after the civil war you have all of these abolitionists who like have spent their whole lives sort of like fighting for the abolition of slavery and like that happens and so all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you have all of this like sort of moral righteous energy floating around in the u.s with no clear place to go um because obviously why would you continue fighting for you know equal rights for african americans like slavery is over there fine reconstruction Mm -hmm. definitely didn't end poorly and the reimposition of like segregation and jim crow definitely not a problem worth fighting so like Let's go focus our attention anywhere. But I mean, that is a problem with like left wing politics. It's like if you only get this one thing, you'll be happy, and then you get the one thing, and you're like, oh, it's more work than I thought. Like you have to actually keep like keeping the momentum of progress is yeah, yeah, it's hard. Hey, can you not whine? I know you're frustrated by it, but you know, Frankie will get through this. Okay, sorry, she's frustrated by that never ending pendulum as well. I appreciate that, um, Frankie. <laughs> Um, and so, um, Ramabai heads back to India with this financial support. And in 1882, um, she founds a shelter for widowed women and girls in Bombay, sort of to serve as a place for them to come and live, but also to learn skills so that they can support themselves. Um, and very quickly, the center sort of starts serving 700 women, um, And many of them go on to either work there after they finish their training um, or to found sort of other similar institutions. Um, And at the same time, she is doing political activism. Uh, She's speaking in front of the Indian National Conference, which is the leading sort of like nationalist organization promoting Indian independence at this time. Um, She's pretty obviously speaking about the need to include more women in that work, unsurprisingly. Um, Yeah, like half the people. Oh, yeah. Would have a say in how that goes. Yeah. Radical thoughts. 
and she starts all of this work as sort of just secular social services. Um, but in the 1890s, she has uh, sort of like an evangelical awakening. So when she originally converted to Christianity, uh, she joins the Anglican Church, which is the official church of England. It's as Protestant churches go, like fairly conservative, closer to Catholicism than to like being a Baptist or sort of the other evangelical Christian churches. Um, but so she goes like, hard evangelical in the 1890s um and founds a church and another mission um sort of in a rural village um more sort of a little bit inland from bombay and there she um starts serving you know up to 1500 people at this place um she's getting support and volunteers from america and from australia um sort of christian missionaries coming to india to do work with her um and this really sort of angers and upsets a lot of Indians because they're seeing her as basically like collaborating with colonial powers and sort of giving in to this westernized Christian ideas. Um, but at the same time, she's actually getting a lot of support from these anti-caste reform groups that she's been working with. Um, because in addition to all of her advocacy for women, she's also sort of a strong opponent of the caste system, um, and is very much writing to contempt that. Um, and so by the 1900s, she's serving, you know, thousands of people um, at various institutions. Um, she's working with education. She's working with women's health care. She's working um, to get sort of women taught these skills so that they can support themselves in their widowhood. Um, but all of this work sort of gets her run down. She's in a lot of ways like a one-woman army running around trying to make all of this happen. Um, and so in the early 1920s, she basically tries to turn over her work to her daughter so that she can kind of retire, rest, get better. Um, but really tragically, her daughter actually passes away in 1921. Um, Ugh. Okay, great. And then uh, she passes away sucks. less than a year later um, in April of 1922. Um, um, yeah. And so that, and, you know, not really much other family besides that. Um, yeah. But then sort of like a really positive way that our episodes don't normally end in the a lot of the institutions she founded are still operating today um they're still serving women and other members of disenfranchised groups um but of course she is pretty much written out of a lot of the mainstream history um and mm -hmm. is a figure who doesn't really get a whole lot of attention because her whole life is sort of dedicated to fighting like a patriarchal system and her religious beliefs are controversial and so she basically kind of gets like pushed to the side and yeah, not really talked about yeah just like that doesn't fit really clearly in like a indian yeah. hindu nationalist narrative about like moving towards independence yeah there's like yeah goes to england converts to christianity yeah it's yeah. not as yeah it's, it's, it's not, not as a package clean. that people are ready for yeah, yeah. um yeah, yeah, and so clean. she That's does clean. not really figure in any of the sort of major histories um but is this, like, really fascinating figure who's doing work that is, like, very feminist, but also um, very, like, socially informed and is, again, sort of this really great example of, like, kind of an intersectional feminist who comes from, like, a very socially privileged position, um, but uses mm -hmm. that power to work for women who don't come from that kind of a place. That's good. Yeah. Oh, my next episode will have a lot in common with her. Um, oh no, I forgot the sweater yeah. story. 
about that? The sweater story? No, there's this great, it's, well, it's it's a moderately fun sweater story about her. Um, Here, you can tell it right now. It's, I mean, there's, it's, it's just this image that she writes about that I found, like, really arresting, which is she's obviously spends a lot of time on ships um, going from the UK to the US and then back to India. Um, and of course, she's wearing sort of these traditional Indian dress, um, but it's cold on ships. And so she has sort of picked up an affinity in the UK for like the big Scottish woolen sweaters. And so just yeah, like doesn't? throws a sweater on like over her sari. Yeah. And she sort of mm-hmm. talks about getting like weird looks from everybody because all of the yeah. Europeans are like, who is this Indian woman? What is she doing? Why is she wearing a sweater? And then all of the Indians she's traveling with are like, who is this woman? Why is she wearing a sweater? Uh, and so oh it's God, this. I love that with like a hot pink sari underneath. Uh, that's exactly I'm the guessing. image I have in my head. Yeah, um, like a big fisherman sweater with that. Yeah, I bet that was awesome. She was probably the most comfortable person in England. Exactly. <laughs> She's like, around me like, no corset, no problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm warm because it rains all the stupid time here. Yep. Yeah. I love that. Did you know that the number one, I think the number one takeout food in England right now is curry-based food, or like curry. I did not. Like to-go Indian. Yeah, because of the influx of all the um, immigrants. Mm-hmm. It's now their number one, like, to-go food. Like, pizza is here. Take that, fish and chips. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, well, it just, like, shows that, you know, over time, immigrants become part of the culture in that way. And maybe, maybe you don't know. I mean, maybe there's other women who saw her and were like, that looks really comfortable and we're actually all walking around wearing that fashion here's hoping that's what i prefer yeah i love it i love it i love um i feel like you're getting a good range of people of like genuinely i've never heard of any of them in like a good way and i just want to thank you for that and like i appreciate that we're not staying white and weird and british you know (laughs) yeah it's so easy right but yeah Cool. Awesome, Michael. Should we take a little break? Yeah, let's take a little break. So say your person's name one more time, Michael. Uh, Pandita Ramabai Sarasvati. Oh, man. Good. It was just as good the second time. You're good. Thank you. It stayed stayed consistent. (laughs) Are you relieved now? A little happy. Like, now I just get to listen to you talk for a bit. Jen could edit it and just put like a really like dry Google voice thing that says it super monotonely but correctly mm. every time you say her name. We could do it that way if you wanted to. I think this might be a little bit better. Yeah, fair. All right. So I'm doing a Barbara Jordan-esque person. Okay. Um, it was uh, it was who I was originally going to do and then I found Barbara Jordan mm-hmm. and I fell in love with her voice on those YouTube videos and I was like, oh, I gotta talk about this lady. She's so cool. So I'm gonna go back to my original and talk to you about Shirley Chisholm. Okay. Do you know Do you know who Shirley Chisholm is? Only very generally. Okay, great. Great. So she's born Shirley Anita St. Hill in uh, 1924 in New York. Her parents were immigrants from the Caribbean and uh, one is from Barbados and one is from Guyana, I think, or British Guyana at the time. And she's the eldest of like four girls, but due to them being like immigrants in the 20s, you know, what happens right when she's 1929, uh, not not great great timing. Yeah, 
No, not great timing. So her mom is like a domestic worker and her dad is a, kind of a handyman, jack of all trades person. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have four girls really quickly. So they're like, oh, a little swamped. Because when both parents work with young children, who can watch them? So they send her down to live with um, Shirley's mother's mother. So her maternal grandmother, Emmeline, who's still in Barbados. And they send her down there to um, kind of live with their grandma to kind of help them with their child care. And while she's in Barbados, they are under British, uh, I'm going to say supervision at the time. I'm not sure if it was... Some, you know, some colonial 20s. thing. It's, you know, Britain's in charge of Barbados at the time. So they have very British school systems. And those are, systems are like regulated, uniforms, uh, structured in a very specific way. Um, very different from American public school at the time. And she gets the opportunity to go to these schools and the school system. And she loves it. She loves education. She loves being at school, she loves learning. She um, she eventually goes on to like learn Spanish fluently, and that serves her very much in her later career. Uh, but she said of this early time, she said that her grandmother gave her strength, dignity, and love, and she learned from an early age that she was somebody. Which I think That's is really great. She's there for a little while, and then in 1939, she goes back home and continues her schooling in Brooklyn, which becomes her uh, home for majority of her life and uh is where she goes on to serve um but she uh oh she goes to um in 1939 she goes to an integrated school for girls so she she sees both the benefit of an all-female uh learning environment and a integrated school system which is sort of that seems unusual for that period in 1939 it is brooklyn so i think it would i mean for my money uh New York is, you know, really booming at this point, mm-hmm. and it's. It, I feel like it'd be hard to segregate in New York just because of the sheer. Now, I'm not saying they didn't do it, but I'm saying like, uh, there's so many people there. There's so many nationalities there that if you had to make a school, I mean, no, I'm talking out of my butt right now. But um, she goes there. It's a big deal for her. Mm-hmm. She gets to work alongside everyone else. It it stays true to what she knows about herself, which is that she is no different than anybody else, except that she might be a little bit smarter. <laughs> and uh, she goes to college and graduates in 1946. And while she's there, she does earn, this is why the Barbara Jordan thing correlated, she earns prizes in debate while she's in college, just like Miss Jordan. And um, her professors see her and she's like, they're, uh, they they thought she had skills and could go into politics. And she was like, uh, hello, I am black and a woman. And it's 1946. Y'all are crazy, but thank you for your, the compliment is appreciated, but yeah, I, it's a lot of work for me. Um, but you know, it starts there, you know, um, she meets, uh, Mr. Chisholm in 1949, which is how she becomes Shirley Chisholm. And they get married in 1949. He's from Jamaica, so they have, like, a familiar um, upbringing in terms of their um, family. And uh, she she gets married to him in 1949. Uh, let's see. She, um, well, I found this pretty interesting, too, is that she goes on to get a master's degree. Hmm. Clearly, this girl loves school. So, um, 
She teaches nursery school while earning a master's in elementary education, which she receives in 1952. And while she's also doing all this, she's just very involved in her community. Um, She sees the benefit of education in her own life, so she wants to help as many, like, both black people and women pursue education as a way of opportunity. And so she's... uh, she consults for the New York Division of Daycare. She's aware of like early education for very young children, both as a way of providing childcare for working parents, but also getting them in early into educational settings. She joins chapters of the League of Women Voters, uh, the NAACP, the Urban League, and the Democratic Party Club in Brooklyn. She's part of all these clubs while earning a master's while teaching during the day. I assume. Wow. During the day. Um, little, little she's bit, a busy bee. little busy. <laughs> busy bee. Busy bee. So um, in 1964, there's a redistricting of New York that occurs. And uh, great. She runs for her district seat in the New York State Legislature. She wins and is there for four years, 1964 to 1968. Those are so some years to be in politics. It's pretty dynamic. So we have a, at the time, let's think about this. We have a Texas Democrat who is president, Lyndon Johnson, Barbara Jordan's friend, Lyndon Johnson. Um, Vietnam's happening, but is maybe not the complete cluster that it will soon be. 68 to 72 is where I kind of think it hits the fan. <laughs> um but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. And civil rights are taking a big national place. Because um, mm-hmm. Civil Rights, civil rights Act is 1964, right? 68. Si- uh, 68? 68? 64. 64. Mm, I should really oh, know that. Let's consult. Let's consult. Oh, boy. Hang on. Voting Rights Act or Civil Rights Act? Which one? Uh, I was thinking oh, my God. Civil Rights Act. Um, yeah. Hold on. Okay. 1964. Cool. And what's 68? 68 might be the Voting Rights Act. No, that's 65. Mm. Okay. I don't know. I mean, 68, all... 68 is a big year. Like, it is MLK a big year. MLK is assassinated. The, um, there are, like, student riots everywhere, like, protests. Is that Bobby Kennedy, too? I think Bobby Kennedy is also assassinated in 68. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. It's a big year. Lots going on in 64 to 68. Um. I think it's also technically an election year for Millhouse Nixon. Is that correct? Nixon wins that election? I think so. There's a lot of... Um, no, it is like... Yeah, because he runs for re-election in 72. Mm-hmm. So, guys, the 60s are fraught. So, okay. So, 64, 68, she sort of sees the downfall of Johnson. And also, I just want to be clear, because we're going to talk about it a little bit. Democratic Party and Republican Party are going through a major shift in this era. 20th century politics with the two-party system is really interesting, because they sort of flip-flop and have a have a crisis of conscience, which, I don't know, might be relevant to today's situation. But Couldn't you possibly know. be. Couldn't possibly no, be. No, I mean, just saying they're not fixed morals, because they switch all the time. So if you think back to, like, the Republican Party is founded by, for all intents and purposes, um, Abraham Lincoln. So it was a very radical party that, like, wanted to abolish slavery. And over time became this other thing, and then... FDR sort of turned everyone around with the New Deal being a Democrat 
and it sort of got way more left, and then that alienated the South. And so over time from FDR to the 60s, like the South was slowly leaving the, the Democratic Party because it was seen as one of uh, equality and uh, civil rights and all of that stuff. And generally the South was maybe not a big fan of those policies as a whole. I'm sure there was pockets of the white, the white South more free thinking. Yeah, exactly. So that's how we kind of get into our modern two party system with Lyndon Johnson and Nixon. They sort of kind of, in my opinion, flip it to the more, um, and then Reagan really takes it to the next level, in my opinion, in terms of like setting up the modern parties that we know of today. But if you talk about a Republican in the 1950s versus a Republican today, they would not understand each other. Just like a Democrat of that time would not understand, like the Dixiecrats, you know about that? They're probably not a big fan of the Obama presidency. No, they would not be. It would be very shocking to them that he would be on the Democratic ticket. Oh, oh man. I would pay to see that. That would be amazing. <laughs> so in summary, would the 60s are fraught. So yeah, so I always was taught like 68 is sort of the culmination of that because there was just chaos at the Democratic Convention. I think that's when the riots were happening outside. Mm-hmm. It was happening in Chicago. You know, everyone was kind of like... Uh, I... Now, okay, let me just clarify. This is coming from my high school education of American politics, which was taught by a Republican. And so her phrasing of it was such like the Democrats just like were chaos in the streets and they didn't know who they were. And Johnson was unpopular and he was Texan, but like pro civil rights and all of this kind of fraught sixties was ending. So the Republicans were seen as sort of a stable, different thing going on. Like I will provide you solid leadership and a return to values and all that nonsense that they always say every four years, Democrat or Republican, um, whoever's not in power, I'm going to be the answer. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, Nixon wins, but at the same time, there's a big redistricting that happens. Um, and so the Brooklyn area that Shirley is from getting back to our lady, the Brooklyn area that Shirley is from gets a new district in Congress and she's like, sweet, I'm done great in my state legislature. I, I've pushed through, um, you know, help for women and children. I'm going to take that to the national level. I'm Shirley Chisholm and I'm fiery as hell. So she she <laughs> runs, she wins, and she's the first um, representative of that seat that continues today. It might have been switched a little bit more. but So she actually, this makes her the first African-American congressperson. Or African-American congresswoman, I should say, in 1968. Amazing. And the only one at the time. So she is very lonely when she goes into Congress for the first time in 19, or January of 1969. And then this took me on a weird route because she's first assigned. So there's all these committees in both the Senate and Congress. You always hear about Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. Maybe you heard about them recently with a little appointment that happened in the Senate. They might have um, made some news. Maybe. Maybe some Brett Kavanaugh stuff. Um, That was the Senate Judiciary Committee. But there's also House committees with Congress Congress, uh, representatives uh, or House of Representatives people. And so I would urge everyone to maybe try and help me figure out how you get appointed to these committees. Because it is vague and weird and very unclear as most parliamentary procedure is to read. Where it's like... 
it doesn't matter how long. I don't know. Okay. It's just, there's favors and there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's politics yes. about it. And it's weird how you get appointed. And once you're in, it's hard to move you out unless you lose elections and your constituents vote on you. And it depends on who has a majority in the House. And this is all to say that midterms matter. And <laughs> this is how it manifests because these committees get formed. And then all of a sudden, Shirley Chisholm is appointed to the House Forestry Committee. And she's from Brooklyn. And she's like, I don't have anything to do with forests. I don't know how to do that well. Why would I do that? I mean, like, thank you for the assignment, but no. And the Democratic Party is like, "Uh, you go where we put you. And she's like, yeah, but it's going to be stupid, so you shouldn't put me there. And she basically (laughs) is like, I don't need to go there. Uh, I should be reassigned as a junior person, which is also like a whole thing. The people who are there the longest get to pick where they want to be. And she's like, no, thank you. I'm not good at forestry, so please move me. Um, forestry. And forestry. I Yeah, it's something else now, but at that time it was that. So she's reassigned to Veterans Affairs. She's a teacher from Brooklyn, but I guess military is where she should go. And then, uh, then she's eventually moved to education and labor, which is where you would think to put her in the first place. But who knows how that happened. It was all good. I mean, like, all of it's good experience, right? Definitely. Um, but at the same time, like, maybe let people play to their strengths? You would think, but she's new. She's the only black woman in Congress at the time. They didn't know what to do with her to begin with, let alone, like, if you were, oh, okay, Democrats, right? It's a weird party. Like I said, there's, like, Georgian Democrats and Brooklyn Democrats at this time. They're going through an existential crisis about who they are. So if you were, you know, some of these bigwigs in the Democratic Party and you saw Shirley Chisholm come in in 1968, wouldn't you think she was like a flash pan, flash in the pan and be like, okay, cool, we're, we're trying something. We'll see if you're here again. Let's put you where you don't make a lot of noise. Or, I don't know. She says later on, like, they were shocked that she had a brain and, like, came with ideas and came with rigor and, like, discipline and was able to, like, hold her own in these... You can tell there's, like, a discrepancy between how she viewed herself and what they expected. Um, but while she's there, she immediately uh, gets in touch with the other African-American men that are a part of Congress, and they form the Congressional Black Caucus, which is still an organization that exists that Barack Obama was a part of. And I think Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are a part of now. It's it's mm-hmm. an organization that um, cites to positively influence the course of events pertinent to African Americans and others of similar experience and situation. And they achieve uh, and achieving greater equity for persons of African descent in the design and content of domestic and international programs and services. So. It started with 12 people in 1969. It's now at about 44. So not a ton, but I think that's tried and true of most of our political podcasts, political people podcasts, where it's just <laughs> like, and it's still not even, or not not, not representative a place that I would find representative. Yeah, but you know, they're still around. But she's one of the founding members. There's a really good picture of her. Um, it's like 12 black Congress, uh, Congress members. And then the one, I think like the one white Congress guy that was like, yeah, I'll help you out. Let's get this organized. Um, so a part of the foundation of this is um, Congress gets to have an opinion on how it 
divvies itself up with these kind of caucuses. And of course, there's some idiots that are like, this is hypocritical. You can't have an all-black body if you're or an all-black caucus if you're a colorblind society. It's like, this isn't a sign of progress. It's a sign of reverse racism and oh, nonsense. Oh, my God. So I just want to say all the same fights we're having now we had in 1969 in debate in a congressional setting. Oh, anyway, uh, it's fine. Um, Nixon refused to meet with them. And they boycotted his 1971 State of the Union. So it is now seen as a sign of, like, progression and pro- and uh, forward thinking to meet with this caucus now. Because it has some political weight. But when it f- was first starting, it was seen as, like, oh, okay, you guys are going to try this thing out, whatever. There's only 12 of you and 535 people, so whatever. Um she she self-described her first months in Congress as miserable. No one engaged with her. No one sat with her to eat lunch. You know, classic high school issues manifest by 30-year-old people and older. There's this amazing story she tells um, in a video interview online where in the mess hall of... I'm just going to re- retell it, even though she tells it better. So there's, like, a mess hall for... Um, members of Congress to go down and eat. And she didn't understand that each state had its own like spot. And that's where you sat. So like Georgia sat over here and Ohio sat together over here. And then they sat over here. That is so high school. I know. Isn't it great to know that that exists at the highest level of government? Um, so she goes in and she's like, Oh, I'm so hungry. So she like loads up her tray knowing no one will sit with her. And she goes down and she like picks the table out and she's like, cool, I'll sit here. Yum, yum, yum. And she's eating her lunch and this guy comes over to her and he's like, you can't be sitting here. And she's like, uh, what? Because he's saying it with this like crazy drawl that she doesn't understand. I know. Aren't you frustrated, Frankie? It's so high school. And he's like, why are you sitting here? You can't be sitting here. And she's like, uh, I don't understand what you're talking about. And she finds out that he's a, he's a representative of Georgia, which... Just to clarify, that's terrifying for her. She's a black woman getting yelled at by a Georgian white man. I can't imagine. She was just like, oh, God, um, what's he going to do to me sort of thing? But at the same time, she's like, no, I'm all right. I'm, I'm going to see this through. And, and she was like, oh, well, I did not know this was your table and I am already eating. Would you mind? Oh, how about, look, there's a table over there. You can go sit over there unless you want to sit with me. Because you don't want to sit with me because I'm a black woman. He's like, oh, oh, yeah. That's basically, yeah. And like calls it what it is. Says what, And she's like, well, listen, you're hungry, aren't you? And he's like, yeah, I'm hungry. She's like, you go sit over there at that empty table. And if anybody bothers you, you tell him to come talk to Shirley Chisholm. And he's like, <laughs> and he goes and he sits down and he eats. So I just think that's, that's very indicative of her character. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's just like. He wouldn't, just, yeah. It's such a posturing thing to say, to be like, oh, if anybody messes with you, they can deal with me. Knowing that no man in this room is going to deal, quote unquote, deal with her. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't see her as being able to take them on. Anyway, the other story she told was about how whenever she entered um, the house floor to go to her desk to sit and do business, you know, the shots on C-SPAN of the congressional floor. 
to do a vote or whatever, she would walk by this delegate who, uh, whenever she walked by him, he would just cough loud, terribly, and then spit into a handkerchief. And she was like, oh, I guess he's sick. And then it kept happening. And she was like, oh, my God. And someone, they were talking about it. She was talking about it with one of her colleagues. And they were like, you know what he's doing, right? He can see you coming from your office. And so he knows you're going to walk by him. And it's a way for him to spit at you without being without being a man about it, if you're asking me. But um, that is so he can covertly spit at you as you walk by. That's so absurdly petty. And to, uh, yeah, it's petty and it's cowardly because he doesn't even do it full out. He's too weak to actually show her what he's doing. But it's a way for him to subvert how he... Yeah, it's nonsense is what it is. So she's like, oh, all right. Okay, great. And she goes and she she's coming to walk into the house floor and he she sees him start to cough and cough and he would cough 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 and then pull the hanky out so he starts his cough cough coughing and she's like oh and she whips a male handkerchief out of her out of her pocket and she's like beat you to it today and hands it to him yeah and goes back and sits at her sits behind him where she normally sits and he stopped coughing at her at that point so little things like that, where it's just like, I see what you're doing. We're going to not do it anymore. Cool? Great. I'm here to get work done. And I think a lot of, and she she's mentioned that at that time, a lot of people witnessed that moment happen. Mm-hmm. And the journalists in the gallery saw it happen and were like hooting and hollering for her. And I think she got a lot of fans that day because they so it showed, once again, her personality and her willingness to like, not fight, but stand up for herself. Yeah. In that way. That feels like the moment, like, if C-SPAN was around at that point, that that would be the, like, YouTube moment yeah. of the day. There's some, there's some definite respect uh, achieved there. Um, so while she's in Congress, she pushes legislation for um, education and employment opportunities, specifically for minority groups. And uh, she she writes a a memoir in 1970 called Unbought and Unbossed, which is like becomes her tagline for the rest of her life. She gives speeches on the Equal Rights Amendment and how it should be um, passed at the time, which famously it was not. And she it's cited as one of uh, the great speeches of the 20th century, this speech that she gives about the ERA. Um, she says discrimination against women solely based solely on the basis of their sex is so widespread that it seems to many persons normal, natural, and right. Prejudice on the basis of race is at least under systemic attack. There is a reason for optimism that it will start to die with the present older generation. And she found I mean, I think she found like she's living in the civil rights movement. She's living in the like she's seeing civil rights like actually take place in her lifetime, being a congresswoman. And the first of, you know, a black congresswoman at the time. So uh, she's like, okay, well, let's keep this momentum going and let's do something for women as well and the American people as a whole. And so um, in 1971, she's like finishing up her, or she's just been reelected to another term. Uh, but she, anyway, sorry, she announces that she wants to run for president as a Democratic candidate for the 1972 election. And um, 
She says, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I am equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people, and my presence before you now symbolizes a new era in American political history. So I think she's keenly aware of the moment and of what representation can do. And I personally think she did not think she could win. And she did it for a statement and she did it for the ability to inspire and was aware of how it mattered. Mm -hmm. And therefore she pursues this kind of, who's the guy that rolls the rock up the hill? Just to have it roll down. The Sisyphean task of trying to run for president in 1972 as a black woman. She's like, I'll do that. That's an impossible task, but I will do it just because I know it'll mean something later. Um, Just coincidentally, in 1971, they lowered the voting age to 18. I think it was 21 prior to that. Mm -hmm. Um, The Pentagon Papers are starting to be published. So there's this general um, upheaval in America about faith in government and trust with administrations in the past. So it's kind of a pessimistic time. And I think Shirley really, like, shove some optimism in the uh in the ether and this uh major bid is that first time that a african-american of either gender runs for a major party nomination it did not happen prior to this and later on she said it was time and she was happy to be the first not only for a black person but also for a woman And she knew she would be in trouble because it activated all men of all races to come for her. Because more than her being black, it was that she was female. And so is this have like primaries Mm -hmm. sort of become a big thing at this point? Or is this still the time of like sort of backroom, like the party picks who's the nominee and then they kind of make that. Oh, definitely the party picks. Definitely the party picks. However, the Democrats at this time were... It was starting to go into primaries being a thing because the Democratic Party was having this sort of crisis of conscience of who they were. They didn't have the kind of lines of legislature like Johnson anymore. And Nixon was doing okay, quite honestly. I mean, not the way my dad tells it, but (laughs) (laughs) at the time, it wasn't full Watergate yet. He wasn't, I mean, the Pentagon Papers had just been published, but America was still trying to figure out like what the heck was going on. Um, Vietnam was super unpopular. Uh, things were going generally well for Republicans, though. And there, uh, from what I understand about that campaign of that time, um, Democrats didn't really know who they wanted to be. There was a lot of like, oh, should it be the anti-war guy? Should it be the the progressive guy? Should it just be anybody that's not Nixon? Like, how do we fight the person in power with the, our candidates? And so she was like, eh, whatever, I'm throwing my hat in the ring. And so kind of like the Republican um, campaign of 2016, do you remember at the very start, there was like 30 of them? And you're like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is crazy. And it was for the first time in a long time that the Republicans did not have a good idea of who they wanted. There's usually like a, a, a general like, oh, this will be the golden boy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Mitt Romney was sort of like agreed in 2012 that it would be him. Yeah. And But in 2016, it was like, we don't know. And the people picked. 
and that's when primaries kind of took over for Republicans. But Democrats at this time, it was sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very start, there's 15 Democratic candidates. And uh, there's a third party candidate of George Wallace, which... Oh, boy. Do you know George Wallace? Do you know Georgia Pooh? George is a, mm, one of the highlights he's of American history. Yeah, he's a hoot at this time. He's running as a third party, and it's in this this year that he is actually shot while campaigning. I did not know he was shot. And nearly dies. In... Oh, you didn't? No. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a big moment. He's, he's shot and nearly dies. I think he becomes paralyzed for a while, if not the rest of his life. Um, but this big moment happens in her campaign when she decides to go visit him in the hospital because as a sign to be like, we've got to chill. This is not the answer for any, any form of ideology. And I don't care what he thinks about me as a person. Like, I don't want him to be shot and killed Mm -hmm. in the pursuit of like politics. I disagree with everything he says, but he's still a person. And he freaked out that she was there. I mean, he didn't like panic or anything. He was just kind of like, what are you doing? And she was like, you're, you're a person, George. I don't care. Um, she really thought she had lost, even if she had lost the like candidacy in that moment, she thought she might have lost her congressional seat too. Like the people of Brooklyn did not agree with her going. Um, she had this anecdote that at before this happened or maybe after she was doing really well in Florida primary at the time against another democratic candidate. And Wallace told them if you're told his kind of followers in Florida, he's like, if you're not going to vote for me, you should vote for Shirley Chisholm. And some people thought that was like underhanded politics. Like he knew he would, the segregationist, racist Alabamian telling people to vote for Shirley Chisholm would kind of undercut her ability to win. Mm. But she genuinely felt like he liked her. Interesting. And I think she's pretty apt about reading people. So I, I find that interesting. Like she always felt like George Wallace was on her team in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that just shows kind of the complexity of people. Yeah. They're not just... It's yeah, it's just complicated. I need to read more about him and how he felt about her from his point of view because um, she had nothing but warm things to say about him in that way. Do you know what I mean? In terms of how he conducted himself with her personally, mm-hmm. did she disagree with all of his nonsense? Yes, yes, I will just say that for sure. He had a lot of problems, anywho. Um, she said that that then carried over into the actual. And to the actual um, convention, because <laughs> what they do in a convention is they go state by state and you cast your electoral votes or whatever of the state to a certain candidate, right? Mm-hmm. And then you need a certain percentage to win. Um, and she said that the Alabama delegation were just whooping for her when they called her name, which is where George Wallace is from. Mm-hmm. And she was like, what? the heck is my life right now i don't understand this at all but she thinks it has something to do with george wallace that's fascinating Um, isn't that crazy yeah it was so weird um so democrats end up nominating george mcgovern other democrats wanted hubert humphrey but he had failed last time and it was not great and there was all this stuff about southern versus like the new wave of post-civil rights act african-americans joining the uh, party 
because like Shirley Chisholm is one of these people. Barbara Jordan is coming out of like Texas as these, you know, mm-hmm. this new wave of uh, voters that maybe didn't have a voice before, but were very prominent in the states. And uh, they they nominate McGovern. It's great. He's you know he's fine. <laughs> he's anti-war. Or whatever. He I don't know. He was fine. He lost. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> um, she said uh, she ran for the office in spite of hopeless odds to demonstrate the sheer will and refusal to accept the status quo. And even though she didn't win, she did receive some votes at the convention. Hmm. And that does say something about what her campaign meant. Um, Nixon wins... <laughs> just he just blows mcgovern out of the water he wins every he wins every electoral college state except massachusetts Ouch. if you see the map it's it's all red except little massachusetts that is it's crazy depressing he, it's super depressing so that's yeah it's it's crazy um anecdote of the time is my dad still says to this day i was like who'd you vote for in 1972 he goes george mcgovern every time proud of it like i did not vote for that man i did not vote for that nixon man oh boy so yeah Oof. anyway did not go his way um so she did it she got through on uns- uh, not totally unscathed but she moved on uh, from the election, and she continued serving her district in Congress, and she served there till 1981. And she, while she was there, she was elected into the Democratic leadership and was a secretary of the House Democratic Caucus. She worked to, while she was in the legislature, she worked to improve um, opportunities for inner city residents. She was uh, opposing of the draft. She did not. Uh, see the point in um, further military spending. She supported increases for education and health care and social services and the things that the Democratic Party likes to say that they enjoy. Mm. They like to say they do. Revolutionary that we that. would actually like work for that at some point. Want to invest in the people that, yeah, vote. Uh, okay. Um, she says later on that she um she she does not enjoy politics after 1981 she sees the reagan revolution that happens and she sees a a disenchantment with her ideals by america as a whole she sees like this new progression of like economy and wealth and a reagan basically repeals a lot of the things that she had worked her whole tenure to achieve. And she was like, I don't know if this is the way I should use my abilities anymore. And so she decides to stop running in 1981. Mm. Um, the In the video that I watched, it was like, what made you stop running for re-election? And she goes, Reagan. <laughs> and then that's it. That's the only <laughs> word. She just did not care for his politics at all. I mean, um, fair. Yeah. That's, she was like, I don't, I just can't get on board with this as a con- like as a concept. So she goes and she teaches at Mount Holyoke College, uh, which at the time I think was still all female. I don't know if it is anymore. I, if it's one of the, I honestly don't know actually. Yeah, this the sister schools, but uh, she taught on any subject she wanted. She taught a lot of politics and sociology, and she also toured to colleges nationally and gave speeches and. 
just consistently was like, education is where you need to be. Pursual of education is what you need to do. You guys are doing everything you need to be doing. Um, and just to get out there at the local level and work your way up. She campaigned for Jesse Jackson when he ran for president. And in 1990, she formed the African American Women for Reproductive Freedom Group, um, citing that that was another opportunity for women to take control of their own lives. And then specifically within a demographic that she was keenly familiar of. She retires to Florida in 91. She's probably approaching 80 at that point. And she gave a lot of interviews in her later years about, you know, you now have the hindsight of what a 1972 campaign meant. Mm -hmm. And she lives the rest of her life in Florida and passes away in 2005. So she did not get to see Barack Obama get elected president or Hillary Clinton get the nomination. But I think she would have been pretty stoked about it because in this late interview that I saw, she was probably late 90s, early 2000s, before she died. She's so super quick, super alert. She's right there with you. And they were like, do you think a woman will be president? And she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. I think, but her her thesis was that um, a woman would have to be vice president first. Mm, Interesting. So that everyone can get used to the idea. And then it would be a little bit easier to then see a president. Which I found interesting. I'm not saying that's the way it'll go. I don't need it to, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't do that with a black person, but, you know. Yeah, no, that is really right? interesting. There's I, never been an African-American vice president, has there? No, no there there's not. No, 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 that would be a big deal. Yeah. No, that, but even like a candidate I, that lost? Not to my knowledge, but that's not, not an, to me either. Vice presidential candidates are not my wheelhouse. I think there's been a couple female. I think there's for sure been at least one female vice president candidate. Mm-hmm. Couldn't tell you who it is right now. I think it was in the early 80s. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting um, thesis of how it'll go. A VP first and then a, that everyone can kind of be like, oh, okay, they can handle it. Even though vice president doesn't, I was like, 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 here's the the thing: secretary of state feels like a lot more actual work to me. Like, I look at someone who's like, you can do that job. You should be able to do the president's job. Yeah, but we don't need to rehash. I mean, we can talk about what president should be doing in a lot of ways, but I don't think we should get into that right now because we've already overpassed our time. But anyway, she she knew even in our later years, like everything she did was. To get stuff done, but to also be a, a a prominent person of representation, I think. And she was just super aware of that, even as she got older. And she knew that she would um, be remembered in that way. And she wanted to be. She, she said in this interview, she's like, I want to be thought of as a woman who dared to be herself and as a catalyst for change in America. And I think she was. I think she had a very accurate view of herself in a nice way without being, you know... Uh, big-headed or egotistical. Mm -hmm. She's like, I know I'm important for this reason, and that's why I'm going to do well. And then also, like, was able to take care of herself in her later years. She was like, okay, I need to step back and, like, not just keep pushing this rock up this hill, but... Yeah. But, like... Let others take up my mantle, in a way. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a lot of a lot of legislators now that cite her as a major influence for why they're in politics. Just like how Gwen Ifill heard Barbara Jordan on TV and was like, oh my God, I need to get into that. A lot of women saw Shirley Chisholm give speeches and go campaigning and it sort of enlightened them to they're now, you know, fully in a career of like Maxine Waters was one that I saw. Kamala Harris has cited her like a lot of legislators now that are in Congress now look to her as like a reason they're there in the first place. So if there's, you know, the African-American caucus in Congress is now 44 people. If Shirley Chisholm and one of 12 made 44 happen, how many more can you get from 44 as you go out exponentially? Yeah, that's a really great way of thinking about that. The more people you can like cite as influence, then it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Shirley, she's great. If you, all of her Google images are worth a view because she's got some great visuals. Um, her campaign slogan was unbought and unbossed, which I think is pretty That's cool. incredible. Yeah. And there's a lot of like the fit, like her signature is like a finger up against the microphone, like hold the phone for a second. And then her portrait, her like congressional portrait is her in this like classic 1970s rap dress, like, you know, like sitcom posing with like arms folded to the side and then like Capitol Hills behind her. She's like, I'm going to take this on. It's no big deal with like giant 70s hair. Ugh. Fashion icon is all I'm saying. <laughs> as well as like amazing social policy. Well, we will have to put photos of both in the... Yeah, I know. The Instagram's going to be great. It's going to be great. So yeah. Amazing. Well, there we go. Shirley Chisholm. Thank you so much. I always deeply appreciate how you're able to like bring these awesome women who are like deeply tied to what's going on in contemporary yeah. American politics and be like, yeah. So politics is a big deal, man. I had politics is on our lives all the time. Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's awesome to get a better sense of like what the context is and like that there's obviously some like really deep history behind a lot of our current yeah. moment to like get a much better sense yeah. of that is always really, really cool. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Good day. I'll see you in a couple hours. Do this Yeah, we'll see how round two goes. Okay. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.